till I see you face to face. And grace amazing takes us home. I trust in you. That's our theme, isn't it? In God we trust. Well, it's November 8th. It's a date that's been on our calendar, it seems like, for two years in this country. And uh, I, for one, am glad to see that it's here and it's going to be over very soon, this long uh, election. I... uh, did some research and you know back in the day the very first election 1796 between john adams and thomas jefferson lasted three months the campaign did wouldn't that be great make america great again like that would be perfect (laughs) and the way the law worked back then is whoever got second place became vice president so i'm glad we've changed that law (laughs) because can you imagine both of these in the office oh It does concern me as I think about this election how much emphasis we place in our commander-in-chief and the leader at the top because it suggests to me that we are doing this because we've lost our trust in the greatest leader. It suggests to me that those that will not trust in God will trust in anything and we're desperately looking for a savior, we're looking for solutions and uh, we are finding them unfortunately in human beings and not in our savior and our sovereign they would listen to the wisdom of Solomon who said in Psalm 27 unless the Lord builds the house its laborers labor in vain that's economic prosperity unless uh, the Lord watches over the city the watchmen stand guard in vain there's your peace and security they come when we trust in God and not in human authorities Uh, we as believers have a interesting relationship with our government we have something of a dual citizenship Paul writes to the Romans that all authority has been established by God. And yet Paul, imprisoned by that same state of Rome, writes to the Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there who is Christ the Lord. We have something of a dual citizenship. We are first and foremost citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but we are also citizens of earthly kingdoms. And the book of Daniel is a case study in how we live in that tension of two kingdoms. Uh, Daniel and the exiles had uh, been in Babylon now, by the time we reach our text in chapter 6 today, for 70 years. And they had lived with this tension, this dual citizenship, if you will. And uh, now their Babylonian overlords have been replaced by Persian overlords. And we come to our text today in chapter 6. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Daniel models for us perfectly what good citizenship looks like. He rises to the very top. He served in government effectively and ably. He maintained his integrity and his allegiance to a higher king and a higher kingdom. He served so well that Darius was prepared to place him second in command over the entire realm. 
But Daniel's rivals would have none of it. Daniel was a man of integrity, and as a government leader, he was incorruptible. And so if his rivals were going to undo him, they had to do so on the basis of his religious convictions. And so we read on in verse 6. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed. Well, actually, they didn't all agree, but that's what politicians do. We've all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Uh, This edict had the effect of establishing a state religion, a national orthodoxy to which every citizen must give assent. Uh, This goes beyond legislating a particular behavior for 30 days, but it's legislating thought, it's legislating belief. And Daniel and the Jewish community could not abide by this edict. They couldn't bow the knee and pray to anyone except the legitimate sovereign ruler of the universe and still maintain any integrity in their faith. So what would Daniel and the people do? And what should we do when the government tells us to change our beliefs or suffer the consequences? Which brings us to this moment today and the possible consequences of this election. The makeup of the Supreme Court may likely change in a way that could all impact us very soon. Issues related to the sanctity of life, both at the beginning of life and the end of life. Freedom of belief when it comes to the definition of marriage gender identity, and expression of a host of other religious beliefs that run counter to the prevailing secular orthodoxy. The pressure to pray to the gods of the spirit of this age will be intense. What can we learn from Daniel's example? Verse 10, now when Daniel learned that decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem three times a day. He got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Daniel's response to this government edict is simple and profound. He prays. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't protest. He doesn't appeal to the constitution of Persia, if there was such a thing. He simply took the matter to his sovereign. He appealed to a higher authority the highest authority. He sought the face of God. What does it mean to seek God's face? A quick survey of scripture, Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple. He says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. Second Chronicles 20 During a time of national crisis, Josephat was afraid. He set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. So seeking the face of God means to come before him in prayer, particularly at a time of national crisis. And from the Psalms, Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Such a person will receive vindication from God and blessing from God, his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who those who seek your face, O God of Jacob. 
And finally, Psalm 27, one thing I ask and this I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Seeking the face of God is is a metaphor for prayer. At a time of distress, at a time of confession, of repentance, it's coming before him. It is, it is also that the idea of relationship, of face-to-face, of intimacy, of closeness. It's all bound up in this beautiful expression. And so Daniel's reaction in this time of national crisis was to go to the face of God, as he had always done. Note what the text says in verse 10 of chapter 6. Daniel prayed just as he had done before. This suggests to me that this was a habit, that this was not just the first time Daniel hit his knees. But at the age of 85 or so, that Daniel has been doing this his entire life. It's nothing new. Praying is habitual. It is a habit. It's something that we do on a regular basis. A little over a year ago, I hated to run. Uh, I would occasionally I would feel like I'm gaining weight, or maybe I'd run to the top of the hill and I'd be huffing and puffing, coming up from the calf, and I thought I got to hit the treadmill, and so I would. I'd hit the treadmill for a while, and then I'd then I'd burn out. But a little over a year ago. Something else happened. I, I got motivated. I had turned 51 the previous summer, and I'm like, I'm getting older. I got to, I got to pick it up here. And uh, also, I have two sons who run cross country, and uh, they're both in college. And I wanted to you know, have some connection with them. Not that I could ever run at their pace, but uh, I love my sons, and I wanted to spend time with them. And this was a way to do it. So that motivated me to get started. But what I found is, after a couple weeks of running, that I was, I was addicted. I really felt like I had to run every day. I'd wake up first thing in the morning and ask myself, when can I run today? Because I got to the point where I loved it. I still do. I look forward to it. It's something I anticipate every day. Now this, to me, I got to thinking about prayer. That's the way prayer is. We, we pray because first, it's good for us. It's for our health. It's the, it's, we need to do this. But, and secondly, we do it for relationship. We do it to know our God. But we also do it ultimately for the pure joy of it. We pray not to get things from God, but to get God. The psalmist said in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on earth. We come to the place where the enjoyment, the pure pleasure of prayer sustains us and causes us to disregard the pleasures of this earth. In preparing for this message, I, I, I read through the book of Daniel devotionally over a couple months. And one of the things that struck me was this idea of Daniel's prayer habit three times a day. Uh, I'm sure we all pray, I pray, but I don't have a Daniel prayer habit. Much has been made of Daniel's uh, plan, the Daniel plan, right? Diet and exercise. But uh, what about the Daniel prayer plan? Uh, so I decided uh, 40 days ago to pick up this Daniel prayer plan for myself. And for the last 40 days, with, with few exceptions, I have followed the Daniel prayer diet. And three times a day, morning, noon, and night, go to my knees and pray. And here's a couple things that I found. Number one, my stress level has decreased dramatically. Because three times a day, I'm just hitting pause and everything. And I am recognizing, God, I need your help. And I take every concern, every worry, every anxiety, every stress I've got... I take a deep breath and I just unload them on God and his sovereignty and his care. 
The second thing I've noticed is more clarity and wisdom in decisions. Uh, James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. He gives generously without finding fault. And so I just take the decisions of my day before God three times, and I find God giving me answers and clarity. I would challenge you to do the same thing over the next 40 days. That takes you to December the 18th. It takes you to the end of the semester. Would you consider trying that? Maybe set an alarm on your phone three times a day. Maybe have a a friend that is accountable uh, to you in this. Uh, Maybe you just think of the rhythms of the day. We have a sunrise. We have a sunset. We have midday. Just as the sun reminds us, let it remind you to pray these three times and trust God to see what will happen. I know we may say, I'm too busy. I don't have time, you know. Daniel was like the number three guy in the country. I think if he could find time to pray three times a day, we could as well. And perhaps we might find that as we pray more, we might become less busy because we might order our lives a little better around God's plans and not ours. The second thing I noticed about Daniel in verse 10 is that uh, he got on his knees and prayed. Not the easiest thing for a man in his 80s to do, perhaps, but he was used to it. Going to our knees is not a tradition that we practice very often in corporate worship. Uh, many other traditions do. In fact, there are kneeling benches that are built into the furniture, and there are altars that where people regularly come. It's just not something that we do in corporate worship. I'm not saying we don't do it privately, but corporately we don't do this very often. When we do, it's typically for an extraordinary situation. It's a, a, some kind of significant emergency. Going to our knees has this way of placing us in a position of recognizing God's power and authority and sovereignty. Uh, Daniel had all kinds of reasons to be proud of his position. He was one of the elite in all the kingdom. He was handsome, intelligent, wise. He commanded men. But three times a day, he went to his knees before an open window and was reminded of his true position in the grand picture. He was a servant of the Most High God, nothing more. And his posture affirmed his identity. The men that Daniel worked with in his government were constantly posturing for power and position. But Daniel simply served faithfully because he was not defined by his position of authority. He was defined by his, permission, by his position of submission. In my 40-day Daniel prayer plan, I found going to my knees to be a transformative experience as well. For one, I realized when I was on my knees, I couldn't do much. I couldn't go anywhere. It was in a position where I could only receive. And I've learned over the years that the more knowledgeable, capable, skilled, experienced you become, the greater the temptation to trust in yourself in your own power, in your own abilities, and not in God. There's something about going to your knees that says, God, I need you. Praying is habitual. It's humbling. My point is that, that going to our knees, this, this inherently outward act, can affect our attitude. Sometimes we think that we change our mind, then we change our actions. But it works the other way as well. Do the actions and the feelings will follow. I think that's the case with kneeling. When we go to our knees, it changes an attitude, places us in a position of dependence. Prayer is habitual, it is humbling, and finally, it is hopeful. Daniel prayed as he had, as he had always done, three times a day, on his knees. But what he was praying for, verse 11 tells us, was God's help. These men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. 
Daniel was turning to the one person who could help him and his people in the situation. He had seen God's faithfulness before in this land, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he knew from the Torah and all of history, God's promises were certain. Prayer is still hopeful because it is rooted in the very nature of God. Jesus said, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now last week, lots of children came to my door dressed up in costumes, and I gave them candy. I didn't give them snakes. Now, if someone came dressed like Charlie Brown, I would give them rocks, but... You know, why do we do that? Why do we give good gifts to children? Because it's natural. It's just what you do. And if someone gives bad things to children, they ought to be locked up. It's natural for God as our Father to give us good gifts. And so when we pray, we pray with just the hope of a child who goes to the door on Halloween night. We're going to get candy. Because God is a good God. But there's more than that in this text here. I think this text itself speaks to an even greater hope that our prayers can be rooted in, and that is a resurrection hope. Listen to the details. Verse 16. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. Daniel's situation could not be changed. His death was a certainty. He would be eaten alive in a few horrific moments. He was placed in a den of lions, a stone rolled over the entrance, secured with a seal and a guard, so the situation would not change. There's a remorseful king losing sleep, troubled over his execution of an innocent man. Consider the similarities of another evening, five centuries later. Jesus, an innocent man, wrapped in barrel clothes, placed in a tomb, a stone rolled over the entrance, Sealed and guarded so that his situation might not change. He had been reluctantly condemned by Pontius Pilate, who agonized over his own role in Jesus' death, his wife losing sleep. But then came the morning. Just as Daniel emerged unharmed from the jaws of a lion, so Jesus emerged from the tomb without a bite from the grave. Daniel's rescue from the lion's den points toward the ultimate shutting of the lion's mouth for our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour but in his resurrection jesus christ has taken the teeth out of that lion's mouth and when we pray this day about anything it is with the confidence that jesus has the power and authority to overcome anything and everything that the enemy can throw at us he has proven it by shutting the mouth of our sins that accuse us and the death that stalks us And so we have no fear. Whatever news comes our way this evening, we have no fear if the government would ever command us to compromise the truth or tell us that we're on the wrong side of history. We will do as the people of God have always done. We will pray full of hope to our Savior and our Sovereign. So let's move from talking about praying to actually doing it. 
in the few moments that we have, we want to uh, to pray. I've got three points that we'll pray about. And I want to ask you if you're able to, and I realize the space is not designed for this, but if you would like to, go to your knees. Go ahead and do that now if you'd like to and have the space to do so. And I will guide you just into three simple prayer points this morning. The first is from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, I urge, first of all, that prayers, requests, intercession, thanksgiving be made for kings and rulers, all those in authority, that we might live peaceful and godly lives in all quietness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Would you pray for our leaders, pray for our country today, specifically as we select our leaders and uh, tomorrow as they take office Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, I will heal their land. Let's pray for the healing of our land following this election, the, the divisions that are present, the tensions. Pray for healing for our land now. Finally, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prays for the nation and he begins with confession. He begins by saying, we have sinned. So let's make this personal. As we read earlier, he who has clean hands, a pure heart, does not lift his soul to an idol. This is the person that enters the presence of God. Let's do our own personal cleansing and confession this morning as an individual and as a nation.